MCC. Man, I'm so excited to be with you this morning. I've been relating with MCC for quite a number of years now, uh, connecting with Mike and Rich and Adam and others. And you guys have amazing leaders here. I hope you know that. I work with uh, churches all over Dayton. And from that perspective and vantage point, I want you to know how blessed you are uh, here at MCC with the leadership that you have. Uh, again, my name is Justin Gravitt. I work with Navigators Church Ministries, and so I help churches throughout Dayton with disciple-making and helping them become more effective in being like Jesus in everyday life and everyday spaces. So um, my hope this morning is that I can connect with you, whether you're here in person or online. Um, that's the goal, because I believe that connection is more important than information. You ever think about that? We have so much information everywhere but yet we are not connected the way that many of us would like. Loneliness is a struggle in our culture. Uh, and I recognize that in the room this morning or online, there are people that are struggling today. Maybe you thought about not coming. Uh, maybe you thought that, that there was a good week to skip um, connection with others and with God. Um, this, just this week, I sat with a friend whose parents had a house fire uh, and they're displaced now for the next year of their lives. Uh, they're okay, fortunately. Another friend of mine I sat with is his son is 14 years old and going through cancer, uh, fighting for his life. And I recognize that there are stories like that either in the room or maybe you have friends that are struggling too. But even in the midst of that, God is good and he is with us. And so I just want to remind us of that, that those are realities, even as we walk out our faith in this um, in this world. Okay, so my goal is connect with you today, so I brought some pictures to share with you. We have about 25 minutes, right? So we can bring the first one up. Um, this is my family will be coming up. We just got back from vacation, and I got about 50 pictures, so I figured what better way to connect than just to share my life with you in this way. I'm totally kidding, um, but I'm not kidding. That is my family. Um, one irony of this morning is that I'm teaching you guys this morning about teaching relationally, and I'm doing that through one-way communication, okay? Irony not lost on me, um, but we will do our best to do that this morning. I love the series that you guys are in, right? This series around disciple-making, this series around what does it look like not just to talk about disciple-making, but actually to live it out in our lives, and the whole series is taking place around this verse, Matthew 4:19, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And it says this, Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And I know here at MCC, this has kind of grounded a definition of disciple-making for you, and I love it because it includes the three things that a disciple must do if they're going to pro proclaim that they're a disciple of Jesus. The first one is to follow him. Right? Follow me, Jesus said. So if we're not following, we are not a disciple. The second one is to be changed by Jesus, because he says, I will make you in that verse, right? Follow me, and I will make you. And then the last one, fishers of men committed to the mission of Jesus. 
So if we want to be a disciple, we need to follow him, be changed by him, and be committed to his mission. Whether we're following for three days or whether we've been following for 30 years or even more, if those things aren't true today, then we probably shouldn't be calling ourselves a disciple. So it, it really holds a standard for us, and that's one of the reasons I love that verse so much. But I have to be honest with you, it's the verse that comes after it that's one of my least favorite verses in all of Scripture. Matthew 4.20 uh, says this, At once they left their nets and followed him. Right now, 19 is nice. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. 420 is not as nice. At once, they left their nets and followed him. And I dislike it so much because I have a, I have a hard time relating to it. Right? Because when I first heard the call of Jesus on my life, instead of leaving everything there and following him, I began to pick some things up, my hopes and dreams, things I wanted to do, and kind of did a Heisman pose to Jesus, like, all right, I'm following a little bit, but not too much. And I've had to learn over the course of my life that that is not what Jesus desires. But looking at the passage of Matthew 4, 19 and 20, it's really hard because I'm like, well, who are these guys that just left everything and followed him? I can't relate. And as I'm trying to learn about being a disciple and making disciples, I want to be able to look in the scriptures and understand what Jesus did with these men and how he changed them from average ordinary men to the people that changed the world. How did they become men who had walk on water faith? You see, when I look at that verse, and Matthew portrays it in his, past, in his gospel as this is the first encounter that Jesus had with Peter and Andrew. Walks up, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They drop everything, start following. And ever since I've read that, I thought, what is going on there? I don't know people like that. Now, I haven't tried this, but I'm contemplating going to Walmart while people are shopping and saying, come follow Jesus and he will make you fishers of men and just see if they drop everything and follow. <laughs> I think it's probably not going to work, but I haven't done it yet. But you know, this is a challenge for us. If we want to be his disciples and make disciples, we need to understand who Jesus was and how he did it. You see, I believe that connection is more important than information because connection paves the way to transformation. And what I hope to show us this morning is that connection paves the way to transformation, not just in our lives, not just with us and God, but with those we disciple as well. And so here's what I want to walk through together is Peter and looking at his life from the start to the shore. What did Jesus do with him? How did he do it? How did he get Peter to that place where he left everything and followed him? See, it's a challenge for us in part because I don't think we understand the life of Jesus at the depth that we need to to emulate the way that he taught. You see, for most of us, we see Jesus' life and ministry kind of like an undone puzzle on the table. And we don't even have the picture for the box to see what this puzzle is supposed to look like, but we just got these puzzle pieces and we're trying to work out the border and we work out the border and we kind of got part of it right. We have Christmas and we know that's part of the beginning of the story. And then we have Easter where he dies on the cross and is resurrected after three days for our sins. And if you don't know that and haven't received him as your savior, that is the starting point for you as a disciple. And we know that's a big part of what he did. And so we kind of have these borders, but then these other pieces are just kind of spread out and we don't know where they fit in. And so we just kind of pick them up and we look at them. Jesus fed the 5,000. Wow. 
and we set it down. And then we look at another one. Oh, the paralytic was lowered from the ceiling. And then he healed that person. He stood up and walked and left. But we don't know which came first. You know, we have other pictures and images of Jesus' life and ministry that we don't have an understanding of a narrative of his life, of did this come early on, did this come later? And we don't know if Jesus drove out the demons uh, from the man who was possessed into the pigs. Did that happen before or after Peter walked on water? And when we don't know, when we don't have a sense of ordering, it's hard to get a sense of what exactly did Jesus do to transform these men from average, ordinary, unschooled people to men who had walk-on-water faith. That's hard. And it's hard in part because the Gospels were not written that way, were they? And the Gospel writers even tell us that they're not including all the events. If they were to include all the events, all the books in all the world wouldn't even contain them. And so some of them start at one place, others in other places. But we can, it's available to us to kind of study parallel passages and mark the Passovers, which happen once a year, to kind of develop a narrative of Jesus' life and ministry so that his three years of ministry aren't just that undone puzzle on the table. And as I said, I want to begin to put some of those pieces together, at least as it pertains to Peter this morning. So the story of Peter and Jesus doesn't start in Matthew 4. The story of Peter and Jesus starts in John 1. John 1, 41 and 42 says, The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. So actually, John chapters 1 through John chapter 4 precedes Matthew 4. Most scholars tell us that John 1 through John 4 takes about a year in time. And so there's a whole year that precedes Jesus walking up to them on the shore saying, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But what happened in that year is important. That was the first experience that Jesus had with Peter when he looked at him and says, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas. His brother Andrew had brought him to introduce him, but it wasn't just Peter and Andrew there that day. There was also Philip and Nathaniel and an unnamed disciple that many believe was John. I call these guys Jesus' starting five. We have Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and the unnamed, maybe John, Jesus is starting five. Jesus went around with a starting five for approximately a year. This is before Jesus called the 12. It was Jesus and his five. And after this first event where Jesus meets Peter, they begin to hang out together. They walked 70 miles to Galilee. And they walked to a place called Cana. And you've probably heard of Cana because that's where the wedding happened. This happened right after Jesus met these guys. Now, a 70-mile walk is not a one-day journey, is it? They were walking for multiple days together, talking together, getting to know each other. And then they show up at this wedding in Cana, and Jesus performs his first miracle. From Cana, they leave Cana and walk 13 miles to Capernaum. Capernaum was Peter's hometown and became Jesus' adopted town later on. But they stayed with Peter's home. And they stayed there for a number of days. And then from there, they walked 85 miles to Jerusalem for the Passover. Again, 85 miles. 
Now, we don't know that these events butted up against each other. It was one right after another. But we know in the span of this year, these are the things that were happening. After they went to Jerusalem, they saw Jesus make a whip and drive out the money changers in the temple. They're getting to know Jesus, aren't they? Connecting with him. From there, they started to journey back to Galilee, and instead of going around Samaria, they went through. And Jesus had an encounter with a Samaritan woman. You can see it all in John 1 through 4. We're not going to take the time this morning, but through this year, Jesus is having experiences with his men, these starting five and others that were with him. And Jesus is getting to know them, connecting with them. Connection drives transformation. Connection drives transformation. So for roughly a year, that's what Peter and Jesus were doing. Now, now the fun part. Now we're going to look at a crossroads moment in Peter's life. We're going to look at this crossroads moment and walk through a scripture you've heard many times, but I hope to bring some fresh uh, energy to it this morning, some insights. But let's just take a moment and think about who Peter was when Jesus met him that day. That first day, Peter was a Jewish man. He was a fisherman. He made his living by catching fish. He provided for his family by fishing in the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Gennesaret, it's sometimes called. And when he caught the fish, he would sell them in the marketplace. They would get money. They would buy other food. They would provide clothes for his family. He lived not only with his uh, wife. They may have had kids. We don't know. Uh, but at least some of his, the next generation, his parents or his in-laws lived with him as well. There's a lot of people that are depending on Peter. And it would be silly of us to think that there was no cost to Peter as he was walking to Jerusalem and going to Cana and going to all these places with Jesus. Peter was leaving things behind, wasn't he? He was leaving relationships. He was leaving responsibilities. And though the text doesn't say this, it doesn't pull it out and draw it up, we know it because we are humans too. We know about responsibility. We know about relationships and the, the stress that is caused when we aren't in our normal places at the normal times. Peter, for a year, is popping in and popping out, going here, going there with Jesus, going out, coming back, engaging with his wife, trying to get back to the fishing we don't know the details, but it would be silly of us to think there wasn't a cost. But Peter was paying that cost little by little, connecting with Jesus. And now I want to take us to the shore. We're going to look at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And in this passage, we're, there's a parallel passage to the Matthew 4, 19 and 20. But Luke gives us a little more detail, and if we can remember what's been happening for the past year, it's going to help us understand even more how Jesus transformed Peter to become the man that he became. So I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll try to jump into it together. It begins, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. 
When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. And so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This passage is familiar to us. But I want us to imagine that we are there with Peter that morning. Now, the scripture says that Peter fished all night long and didn't catch anything. You know, I don't think that really captures what Peter experienced that night. See, the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, it's the same place. It was, it was Peter's home turf. It was the lake that he grew up fishing. And it's not enough to say he just didn't catch anything. What we really need to say is Peter fished hour after hour after hour after hour after hour. Peter went to his favorite spot and his next favorite spot and the next one, the next one, the next one. He threw his nets in over and over and over again, each time pulling him up, expecting fish to be in it to find nothing. This is the night that Peter had just experienced. And again, we don't know the pressures if he needed to catch fish that night to provide for his family. Was he just back from going out with Jesus? We don't know. But we know for the past year, he'd been making some sacrifice to follow Jesus, and he just fished all night and didn't catch a single fish. And there he is on the shore, cleaning his nets. And wouldn't you know it, as he's cleaning his nets, he looks down the shore and he sees Jesus teaching. He's cleaning, and Jesus is known at that time, and so crowds are beginning to gather and press in upon him. And Jesus wants to get some distance from the crowds. And so he asked Peter, Peter, can we put the boat out a little bit? I need some space. So Peter obliges. Peter still cleaning his nets, listening to Jesus teach. Luke doesn't tell us what he taught, but it would be, it would be normal that he would be teaching on some of his favorite subjects. The kingdom of God. How we can trust God. How God will provide for us. And there Peter sits center stage, while Jesus teaches on these things, and Peter cleans his nets after a night of not catching a thing. How would you feel? I know for me, I would be really grumpy. Be like, providing for us, catch any fish. God knows I need fish. I, I went to every place. There was one, not one fish. How would you have felt? Finally, Jesus wraps up his teaching. Peter, probably feeling some joy inside, that he finally gets to get out of this situation and get some distance from these messages that are conflicting with his experience. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, why don't we put out for a catch? Man, the frustration that he may have felt. But Peter is so gracious in this moment because Peter, the professional fisherman, didn't catch anything. And Jesus, the carpenter, the stonemason, says, let's put out for a catch. And Peter says, okay, Jesus, I fished all night. 
but because you say so, let's go. Now, I think I trust that Peter's attitude would have been better for mine and maybe better for yours, I don't know. But we've all been in that situation, haven't we? If you have a spouse or if you've been uh, asked by your parent to go and go into the pantry and find a can of whatever, and you go down or you go to that pantry and you just don't have any and you come back and you tell the person that just asked you, I'm sorry, we're out. And that person looks right at you and says, oh, no, 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 we have it. Did you check the third shelf? Can, could, you, could you check again? Now, I will go back, but I am not going back to find it. I'm going back to prove that we do not have it. Anybody relate, right? So we're not going back to find We're going back to prove it's not there. I wonder if Peter felt that way as they're going out to the deep. And I wonder what Jesus' face is like, knowing what's about to happen. Finally, the boat gets out where it needs to be. Peter throws his freshly cleaned net into the water again. And he begins to pull it up, knowing there's not going to be anything there, and he begins to feel a weight. And as he pulls even more, he realizes there's something there. And as he gets it close to the top, the water begins to roil all around. And the weight becomes so great at these nets, he realizes he's not going to be able to get them all in himself. Calls over his buddies, hey, I need help. There's so many fish. They bring the fish over. There's so many fish in this boat that the boat is beginning to sink in the water. And it's at this moment in the story that always stops me because something happens now that I don't expect. Because what I expect is that Peter would run to Jesus laughing, put his arms around Jesus. How did you do that? That was awesome. I honestly didn't think we'd catch anything. But Peter doesn't do that, does he? Instead, Peter goes to Jesus and falls at his feet with the fish flapping around. And he looks at Jesus and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. What happened? You see, it's almost as if Peter had fished all night wanting to catch everything and caught nothing. Goes out to catch nothing and catch everything. Falls at Jesus' feet because he realizes he's the one that's been caught. Scholars will tell us that this is maybe normal that we would expect Peter to respond in this way because it's a theophany, an encounter with the divine. And when humans encounter the divine, you can expect two things. You can expect a sense of fear and you can expect a sense of their own sinfulness. And we see that with Peter, but I think there's more going on here. You see, I do believe that when Jesus said, let's put out for a catch, he was talking about catching Peter, not the fish. And I believe that because of what Jesus says in response to Peter, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. From now on, Peter, from now on, things are going to change. There's a defining moment here, Peter, that the past is the past and the present and the future is something different. From now on, Peter. See, we talk about teaching relationally. I think Jesus understood the pressures that Peter was under. Jesus had connected enough with Peter to know what had happened. 
not just that night, but what had been happening for the year, the struggle that he'd been going through, whatever the details of that were. And I think now with Peter at his feet, Jesus is ready to tell him, you're ready, it's time. Now you see me. And now that you see me, you can really follow me. Man, it's such a powerful moment. And then what happens next? They pull their boats up on shore, leave everything and follow him. All the fish. Scholars say the fish would have amounted to about a year's worth of wages. Just left it. See, Peter had been transformed because connection paves the way for transformation. What does that mean for us? Listen, if we're going to learn how to teach relationally, there are some things that we have to change as people. One of the things that we have to change, we have to stop overvaluing information and start rightly valuing connection. And the way that we do that is by looking at what did Jesus do with his people and how did he do it? But also looking at our own lives and recognizing that those who have transformed us most deeply are the ones who connected with us most deeply, not the ones who knew the most in their mind. Well, teaching relationally, and I'm about to share with you three keys on how to do that, but I just want to acknowledge that for some of us in this room, some of us online, we're just trying to figure out how do we be a disciple? How do we follow him? And if that's where you're at this morning, that's okay. That's a great place to be. And for you, I would say we need to just continue to connect. Connect with Jesus over and over and over again and listen and respond. But if we want to learn how to teach relationally, I'm really talking about disciple makers, right? How do we make disciples? How do we help them become disciple makers? There's three keys that I've learned, and I've learned them two ways. One, by people that have helped me as they've discipled me. But another way is over the past 25 years as I've been making disciples and disciple makers. There are three things you need to do. The first one is this. You need to share enough to connect. You need to share enough to to connect. And what I mean by that is sharing your life. Not hiding. Not looking and popping into somebody's life, but opening up your life so that you can be seen, the good and the bad. See, I have a saying, we cannot disciple at a distance. We have to get close up. Life on life. Face to face, heart to heart. That's hard in our culture, because our culture is so scheduled. And it's okay to invite somebody that you're discipling to go run errands with you. Just be with them. It's okay to invite them over to weed your flower beds together. Some free labor in that too, by the way. Not that that's the motivation. But we can do that, because what our people need that we're trying to influence is they just need to see us in everyday environments, to know that what we're talking about isn't just talk, that we're actually living it out. We open up our lives so that they can see, hey, this isn't talk, I'm doing it. I'm not doing it perfect either. Which leads to the second one, show your weakness. So we have to share enough to connect, we have to show our weakness or our weaknesses. I like to say you need to share your scars, not just your scriptures. Where are the places in you that God has been ministering? Where is the transformation that's already happened? Where is the transformation he's currently working on in your life? 
These are all things that should be open topics with those that you are discipling. I was thinking this week whether Jesus modeled that for us in any way, and it's a little bit hard because Jesus is Son of God, weakness, you know, we don't normally think in that way, but I think he did. I think one of the ways that he shared his weakness with his disciples was by telling them how frustrated he was with them sometimes. He would say things like, do you still not understand? How much longer do I have to stay with you? Are you still so dull? I'm not recommending we say that to the people that we're discipling, right? Not a good, um, although, but we do need to be honest if we're frustrated. And Jesus was being honest with them about his frustration. It would have been easy for him to not do that. In the same way, we need to show people that we have weakness, we have things that we're working on. Because if we don't, they'll put us up on a pedestal and they'll think, I can never do what you're doing. I can never be like you. And they'll never go and make other disciples. And that's how we get dead-end discipling, which is not what we want. Finally, we need to speak faith into them. Jesus did this with Peter when he said, from now on. From now on, Peter, from now on. He did it when he first met Peter and said, from now on, you will be called Cephas. I'm currently discipling a guy named Rob. He's a, a salesman in the Dayton area. And Rob and I have been connecting for a while, but when I first met Rob, I had the vision that he was going to be a disciple maker, and he was just trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. And so I talked to him about, man, Rob, someday you're going you're gonna to impact people. You're going to be making disciples. He said, I don't know about that. I said, it's okay. I know for you. Not long ago, I asked him how things were going at work in his workplace, and we decided that he should go and talk to some of his coworkers and ask them how he could pray for them. He was a little nervous about that, but he went and did it. And then a few weeks later, came back together and asked him how it went. He said, I didn't really have much to say about it. I said, okay. So a few weeks later, he comes back. He says, Justin, my coworker asked me, came and said, hey, I've been thinking, can you pray about this for me? And I just, I've been doing that. I was like, great. A little while later, he comes back. Hey, Justin, I asked him how it's going to work. He said, listen, uh, it was really cool. They, they were in a room together, like four of them, and then so-and-so came out and asked me if I'd come in because they, they realized that they wanted prayer and they wanted me to pray for them all. I said, Rob, don't you see what's happening? God's doing it. You are being looked at as someone who can lead them spiritually. God's making you a disciple maker. You know, in discipling, we have to do that. We have to see before those that we're discipling and sometimes see for those who are discipling. And we have to say it to them. Hey, you are going to do this. God's using you. It's not complicated. Teach relationally is not complicated. We need to share enough to connect. We need to show our weakness. And then we need to speak faith into them. What would it look like if you did that? You see, some of you right now are thinking like my friend Rob. Oh, I could never do that. I don't think I could ever make a disciple. Some of you are thinking, I don't know enough. Again, don't overvalue information. Connection beats information. Connection paves the way to transformation. I believe that God wants each and every one of you listening to make disciples. I actually believe you can about you? Is God powerful enough to transform you? 
Is God powerful enough to use you in the lives of others? He is, and he will. Let me pray for you. God, we are thankful for you. Jesus, we're thankful for your model that you've given us of what it looks like to love people. Lord, to care enough to enter into their story, to open up our lives enough so that they can see the way that you've transformed our, our life, the way that you're continuing to do that. God, I pray that you would help us to lean in, to connect to you, and that as we do that, you would transform us and to help us be disciple makers for you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.